Well, hey, Story fans. 2015 is looking to be a big year for Second Story, with more storytellers in more neighborhoods than we've ever had before. We'd love for you to be a part of the live Second Story experience. Join us this coming Saturday, January 10th, at The Promontory in Hyde Park to kick 2015 off right. With live music from Second Story house band Seeking Wonderland and four exciting new stories, make being a part of Second Story the New Year's resolution that you plan to keep. This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Second Story Company member Deb Lewis has brought her unique blend of empathy and hard-assery to Second Story for years, and her voice and experience has helped to mold, I don't know, probably millions of students at Columbia College Chicago. While many know her towering presence in the classroom, few have a glimpse into the inner life of Deb. That is, until now. Balancing a wife whose health is failing, a job that's demanding more than she has to give, and a daughter hitting puberty at just the wrong time, Life can get pretty overwhelming for long stretches. With our New Year's resolutions firmly planted in our brains, Deb asks the question, how do you balance time when your world is increasingly insane? With The One Thing I Can Do, Second Story is proud to present Deb Lewis. To put it in pagan terms around the triple goddess, in our house, my wife Gail is the crone, the waning moon. I'm the full moon, the mother, starting hot flashes. And Molly, who's 11, is the waxing moon maiden in puberty. Basically, my wife lives with two hormonally challenged goats always butting heads. And today, this butch can't quit crying, feeling more like a scorched crater than a blissed out moon. I wake Gail from a 16-hour slumber while Molly yells some dumb shit like she can't find her shoes. And I snap, how would I know? I don't wear your damn shoes. And honestly, I don't. I wouldn't even want to. The you always, you never keeps rolling off the kid's tongue. I'm going out of my head. And Gail, without opening her eyes, says, Molly, leave Deb alone. She's stressed out. She doesn't do anything. I have to do school and, and the dishes. She just sits around. Deb's working three jobs, then works with you for school. She manages laundry, dinner, pays bills. Then if she's not too tired, she writes. Molly's mouth opens. Gail raises a hand. Every time she comes to wake me, she's afraid she'll find me lying here dead. Whatever, Mom bails out the bedroom, down the stairs, leaving me at the bed's edge. I hadn't realized Gail had seen this in me. Of our 19 years together, I've often braced against losing her to poor health. Our faith celebrates the cycles and forces of nature, but death and change and I are at odds. Gail's a cackling earth mother when she's at the height of her powers, but... I'm more like a junkyard dog, guarding against loss to the exclusion of most else. And stupid tears from goddamn hormones threaten to ramp into brain sobs. Not the first or last time she's seen me unmanned. But let's back up. In the heat of July 2009 during a waxing moon, 
when you'd worked toward increase, Gail called from her nursing job. I fell and hit my head. I'm at employee health. They scanned my neck. It's not broken. Please come pick me up. None of this struck me as something to freak about. Her voice made it sound like small potatoes. Nothing like the time a patient lost it and beat her with an IV pole or Actually, we've landed many emergencies over the years worthy of canceling everything last minute. I mean, sometimes it's like we live in the Alice's Restaurant of Catastrophes. But I didn't instantly worry at Gail's phone call and kind of thought I was outgrowing my fretfulness. Gail toddles to the car like a sailor unused to land, eyes pain-haunted again. Throughout your back... I don't know. What happened? As I drive, she keeps her eyes shut. I was lining up the magnifier for a breast biopsy like a thousand times before, but the stool shot out from under my ass. I hit my tailbone, hinged back, back of my head hit, bounced. I saw a bright light and the patient screamed. I sat through the procedure sick as a dog. Supervisor had me write an incident report, sent me to employee health. A guard found me wandering lost, grabbed a wheelchair and helped me, and then they did a CAT scan of my neck. I found this kind of weird. They didn't check your head? No. Did they tell you not to sleep? No. They give you any papers? She holds them up. I pulled into the park entrance at Montrose Harbor where we usually go to watch crows and boats or dance to drums near the full moon at the fire jam when our backyard's just too damn small. And we stop in the curve where the sand's been blowing inland these last few summers. Seeing it, I can't help but think of Dune, which I've read to her in bed all six books a couple times over the years. I parked to scan the canary pages, ready to take her ass back to the hospital. There's nothing about her head. And instead of Gail's precise notations like I expect, her incident report reads like Molly wrote it last year in first grade. Should I take you back? No, I just want to get out of the light. So I take her home to Rogers Park. Make her tell me again. They said nothing about staying awake. It doesn't make sense. But I'm not the nurse, and she is, and she doesn't think it's a problem. I tuck her in. This is about four on a Friday afternoon. I feed Molly. She's like seven at this point. After her bedtime, I check on Gail. Doesn't want dinner. Nothing to drink. Super migraine. I sit in my office, can't write. One of our sayings when we share cakes and ale at ritual time during the various changes of seasons is, may you never hunger, may you never thirst. It's part of our hand fasting. That's a pagan wedding. She's feeling puny to want nothing. We didn't get big by not eating. Worry dries my pen up. Climbing into bed, I ask, last-ditch effort, want me to read to you or just shut up? You can read if you feel like it. I read my wife to sleep nightly. 
This started around 97 with like water for chocolate. We planned to take turns reading to each other and it quickly became me reading her to sleep. Now I read a new translation of Kafka's The Trial in whispers. <laughs> you know this book. <laughs> and I read until her brow smooths, until I feel sleepy. On Saturn morn, I lure her from bed by offering breakfast out. No, light hurts. I dark out the sun with the curtains, and it's me and Molly on painfully quiet behavior as Gail sleeps. Mostly we stare at the TV because I can scarcely function. Gail just sleeps. All the way through to Sunday night. On Monday, my concern manifests as soul-burning impatience. Shouldn't you sit up so you don't get pneumonia? can't. If you can't sit up by tomorrow, I'm taking your butt to the ER. I figured this would get her spirit fighting because nurses hate being patients. She says nothing, already asleep. Tuesday morning, I guide her to the car, walking backward, her hands on my shoulders, eyes shut, her, my arms around her. So if she goes down, she'll go down on top of me. The sun hurts through my eyelids. Once she's eased into place, I hand her a towel to hold over her face and buckle her seatbelt for her. The Gold Coast Hospital keeps her a week diagnosing post-concussive disorder, giving meds for nausea. At home, alone at night, I have to sleep on her side of the bed or I'll reach for her and wake to stare out our window at the moon's slow trajectory. August 1st is Lamas. This is when pagans eat all last season's grain and other food stores to make room for a new harvest. Bread, cookies, cake. We never miss it. This year, she's in the hospital and it slides past noticed a few days after. Thursday comes before she keeps down water. Through it all, lights, motion, cologne, even the touch of a stethoscope sends her head off to the point of puking on a resident's shoes. Sounds are too much. She can hear her eyeballs move in her head. Friday, she mumbles, I see orange spiders, like TV when the, when the, when the ants run. You mean ant races, like static? Yes, she sighs. It's okay. I know they're not real. My heart swells. I've been looking for my gale since last Friday, and this is my first sign of her. This is so gale. If my field of vision were orange spiders, I'd go fucking berserk and stay there, but gale child of the late 60s has perhaps trained enough back in the day in psychedelics so this doesn't throw her. On Sunday, she eats a couple saltines. This counts as solid food, so the hospital lets her come home. Happy llamas. For the next two weeks, she sleeps 23 hours a day while I call her into work, arrange facts, doctor excuses, Ask HR to send family medical leave papers, get them approved, but it's a shitstorm within a shitstorm. Do you know what I'm talking about? If so, I am so damn sorry. All you can do sometimes is keep breathing. 
A month after the accident, two supervisors conference called to fire her like they got to hold hands to break the news. Month after that, September, Gail's vacation pay runs out. Disability kicks in, but it turns off and on like some rotten kids playing with a faucet. And if we have to live on my adjunct prof pay, <laughs> we're screwed because uh, I can't imagine looking for another job just now. Mal and I study at the kitchen table, keep quiet in the house. I read student work, teach my classes, pick up extra short-term gigs, catch as catch can, fret bills, cook meals nothing like what Gail did before her recipes dropped out of her head, but more often order something because it's all too damn much. Writing is the fitful dregs because I can't think, can't daydream, and I imagine deserting to a small studio with fewer moving parts. Right on the heels, I imagine how defenseless my family would be if I ran away. What happens when a mother walks out? What are the waxing and waning moons without a full one in between? So I stay and do minute by hour only the necessities. Nothing extra, no taking the kid to the zoo, because my universe is in a burning season, burning away family members on both our sides back home in rented hospice beds, and burning away the illusion we might have once been middle class. There's not even time for the luxury of depression. I mean, fuck, I'm a pagan, and half the time I don't know what phase the moon's in, let alone work our altar according to the seasons as they pass. And Samhain, Halloween, we know it is the night we can speak to our ancestors. It's half-hearted. I tell myself the ones on the other side understand. And I'm spinning when my sweet Gail says, if I ever get to a point where I don't recognize you, it's time to hold a pillow over my face. Promise me. I nod because pagan life is about quality, not suffering and pointless longevity. I shoulder this too because it's like adding three atoms to a black hole at this point. The veil between living and dead is thin this time of year. Of course, this would be on both our minds. I try to imagine me and Molly without Gail to smooth us out, a waxing and a full moon to just build and build with no darkening. Decide I'll deal with that when I absolutely have to. Six months drag as days fly through tasks. 20 hours sleep and sometimes the orange spiders recede to the edges of Gale's vision, framing the universe. But TV, reading, music, out of the question. I read her to sleep. Read when she's bored and can't sleep and can't bear motion or light. And this, at least, is something in our world that's familiar. But the next time she heads for bed, she asks, Will you read to me? You haven't in a long time. So I read her to sleep, knowing she won't remember the master and margarita or even the act of my reading at all because it's the one thing I can do to anchor her in a moment give succor from pain and the boredom of the dark and quiet she requires. I don't yet know this dark night of our souls is only the most frightening six months of my life. Reading to her is a desperate act, our sadhana or rosary, if you will. In the back of my mind, 
I remember this sort of thing seems to help coma patients, but really I do this because I don't know what else to do. And I don't know it's not forever. That in a few years my wife will reach a plateau at 12 hours of sleep with okay days and really bad ones. She'll gradually remember bits of story from the night before, but get lost in our neighborhood. And with the patience of moon phases, we'll recover some of what used to be and find our path changed. When did you hold off the urge to walk away? How did you find the strength to keep balance? This story was curated by Amanda Delheimer Diamond, with performance direction by Julie Sadowski, a sound design by Nick Kawahara. This podcast was produced by Eric Hazen. I got a chance to have a rare moment of quiet and peace with Deb over a bottle of wine at the Second Story studio. Happy New Year. I'm uh, planning on this year being really boring. Great. No crazy shit coming down the pipe. I think that's a great, great resolution. So if you're planning to have a heroin overdose, just, you know, move out of state. I'm not dealing with it. Um, I'm, wanting, I'm wanting to get back to where writing is the place that I go for things instead of playing a game on my phone, mm-hmm. which is just a waste of time. You know? Candy Crush is pretty good. <laughs> In the, in the writing process of this story, did it come out cleaner, like on a first draft, or than than usual? Was it was it something that that was birthed almost fully formed, or was it was it more difficult to wrestle with because it's been so present and because it's been such a? It was a little more difficult to wrestle with, just because at some point Gail might see a draft. Yeah. There was a part of it, like at the beginning, it talks about the paganism. That was kind of a throwaway. I was feeling around for a beginning. Mm -hmm. And our uh, curator asked, what was Amanda at the time, uh, said, you know, um, you you mentioned this pagan thing at the beginning, and then then it's gone. You should really pull that through. And my initial thought before she said that was, well, I'll chop that pagan shit off, you know. And it turned out to be the right direction for mm-hmm. the story that it would interweave. So if, if if it wasn't for the curation and building process, would you have necessarily gone in that direction? Like like if Amanda I might hadn't... not have. Yeah. I might not have, you know, and uh but it turned out to be m- much lovelier yeah. for that. How did you and Gail first meet? Can I can <laughs> I I want to hear that story. Oh, this is this is fun. Um <laughs> I, uh, something happy to talk about for once. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, <laughs> in the infancy of the internet, on a chat board, I had found out about the Chicago Eagle, but I couldn't find it because it wasn't marked. It was Still just an marked. address. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think the pit's completely gone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw this woman walking down a path with a cane with this, uh, big huffing other woman with her they were together and uh chicago sluts t-shirt on you know lovely black t-shirt white lettering and 
And I said, excuse me, ma'am. Are you from Chicago? I have been looking for the Eagle for a long time, and I know I've driven up and down that block, and I've never really figured out exactly where it is. Oh, honey, I have a daughter that's just about your age. You ought to come over to my house, the Chicago Sluts. Yes, we meet at the Eagle, and I will help you find it. It's a bunch of good people. Um, let me feed you. I'm a damn good cook, you know. Don't worry, I'm harmless. And we joke about that to this day. I tell our daycare lady, um, who is a saint, um, that one of these days I'm going to be a diamond. You know, I'm still cold. <laughs> I feel all of my failures, you know, but, but one of these days we're all going to be diamonds because all the pressure and the heat's got to add up to yeah, something. You were born a diamond. Oh, God. <laughs> Deb Lewis, we love you. Deb's Pushcart Prize-nominated Why I Hate Strawberries was published in the second story anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck. You can find out more about Deb, this podcast, or any of our storytellers, including links to their other work, at the Second Story website at secondstory.com. Be sure to join in the Second Story conversation. Join us for our next live show in Chicago at the Promontory in Hyde Park on January 10th. You can also visit Second Story on Facebook or Twitter to interact with our artists and performers about their work. You can always reach me for comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at podcast at secondstory.com. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. As crazy as it sounds, it really can help us attract new listeners. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with a special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. We share our stories, so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them down with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Second Story.